You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording of the Humanities Institute's Annual Distinguished Guest Lecture. The 2021 lecture was given by Professor Eva Horn from the University of Vienna on the 20th of October in the Humanities Institute. Professor Horn's lecture was entitled Being in the Air, an Aesthetic and Intellectual History of Climate. Thank you very much. This is, in fact, the project I'm currently doing at Wissenschaftskolleg in Berlin. I've been trying to do this ever since 2014. And then I wrote this book uh, that Anna mentioned on the Anthropocene. And in a certain way, I will not talk or practically not talk about the Anthropocene, except for now I'm at the very end of my talk. Uh, But the Anthropocene or the diagnosis of a major um, planetary uh, ecological catastrophe, I wouldn't call it catastrophe, rather transition phase, um, uh, we, are, we are currently facing is the background of my interest in climate. However, unlike in my disaster book, I will not talk about climate change. Very often I tell people, like, I'm working on climate and they're, it's so great, it's so topical, you're working on climate change. It's, no, <laughs> climate. And this is what I'm going to bore you with for the next 40 minutes. Um, an idea of the air or of climate before climate change, before a modern separation of thinking about nature on the one hand and thinking about human culture or human social bonds on the other. Um, So let me start with something that will strike you as maybe obvious. Um, Of course, climate and the air are topics of the sciences. You have modern climate science, you have earth system science, you have the chemistry of the air. One of the, or the father of the um, the term Anthropocene is in fact Paul Krutzen, who is a chemist of the air, of the, anthrop- uh, of the, of the atmosphere. Um, what I would like to do is to think about how can we address these topics that normally uh, are, are seen as science, science topics, how can we address them from a perspective of the humanities and how does this relate to one another. Um, One idea of taking science objects into the realm of the humanities is often quite critical of science. They think they have a limited uh, epistemology, they are Cartesian, they separate nature and culture, they think of nature only in terms of laws and rules and uh, not of the agency of natural objects and so on. I just tell you beforehand, I'm not doing that. Um, I do not want to criticize the approach that sciences have um, for, from a humanities perspective. What I'm trying to do and what I try, what I believe is necessary, and that's also my experience with working, you mentioned this Earth Future paper, the, the main author is not 
by far not me, but it's Jan Zalazewicz, whom you all know as one of the most eminent geologists of our times. And it's really a collaboration between scientists and a few humanities and history and social sciences scholars. What I believe we have to do in this current predicament of the Anthropocene is really, in fact, not criticizing each other or finding each other's blind spots, but by finding each other's blind spots or shortcomings, uh, try to complement one another. So my humanities approach to air is really thought as the other side of a picture that is very well being drawn out by the sciences. However, I start with a mild criticism, and that's not a criticism of science, it's a criticism of our modern idea of climate, which is very much informed by a state of affairs of the 20th century. So this is the contents of my talk. I start with climate science and its discontents, and then comes a long, 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 long um, story about climate conceptions or air, the conception of the air in antiquity, 18th, 19th century. And then I talk about the end of the air, the end of this ancient understanding of climate and why it might make sense to look back into this older 18th century type of understanding. So let me start with the modern or contemporary understanding of uh, climate. What, when we think about climate, we think of this. We think about a global phenomenon, we think about a global system, atmospheric system, and we think about this system changing outside uh, the, the limits of, uh, the, the very stable limits of, an, uh, of Holocene uh, climate. Um, this is what we have now. We're, we're about one and a half degrees higher than the Holocene limit already. We have 420 uh, parts per million of CO2. And so we the, uh, see this. The problem is, what does it tell us for us, for the way we live, uh, for the location we find ourselves in, for uh, anything that we can experience as human beings. It does not, and this has something to do with the modern definition of climate, which may strike us as completely unquestionable. This is what you will find in a dictionary. This is the uh, definition of uh, the World Meteorological Organization, and it goes like this. Climate, in a narrow sense, is usually defined as the average weather, or more rigorously as the statistical description in terms of the mean and variability of relevant quantities over a period of time ranging from months to thousands or millions of years. The classical period is 30 years, and so on. These quantities are surface variables such as temperature, precipitation, and wind, etc. Okay, so climate as we understand it today is a statistical term. It's the average weather, even if we think of it being in a certain location, such as Dublin, for instance, we would think about Dublin climate as an average and not as the condition of the atmosphere in a given time, in a given season. Um, so the shortcoming of this understanding, which is at the basis of all our attempts to politicize 
this, uh, the, these uh, phenomena. This is a, not just a scientific, but also a political fact or a political problem that we see, but it's really abstract. And this is why we have had for the past 30 years, along with very, very robust science about climate change. It's not like we found this out five years ago or Greta Thunberg uh, uh, found it out, but we know this for 30 years. And there have been people paid so-called scientists who said, oh, we don't have robust evidence, the methods are not sound, blah, blah, blah. So the problem is we could not experience anything. So for this very long time, now we have events, weather events, where we cannot, we just can't say this is normal, like the floodings in, in continental Europe, uh, especially in Germany. But... Um, before that, we had a problem of evidence and therefore a problem of politicizing these, uh, these facts. And I think we need to go, or it, it might be worth going back to an ancient understanding of climate and air to tap into a tradition where the air and climate were something very, very perceptible, very concrete, very personal. And that's why I would like to go now into that. What was air? What was climate? You will have noticed that I use the terms almost um, as synonyms. That works. If you're an 18th century specialist, you will say, sure, Arbuthnot, he does exactly that. Uh, but in, for modern definition, it will strike you as odd. Um, what was air? What was climate? It, it was for a long time more or less the same phenomenon, sometimes called air, sometimes called climate. But let me just rush you through a conceptual history of air as an element since antiquity. You know the, the, the idea po pointed out most famously by Empedocles that air is an element uh, alongside three other elements, um, that the whole cosmos, including the human body, consists of these four elements. Everything that happens in nature is uh, an outcome of m mixings and uh, love and strife, as, as Empedocles calls it, of adversary and attracting relationships of these four elements. So air would be one of the four parts of which the world is made. In Hippocratic medicine, about 100 years later than Empedocles, but we're still talking 400 before Christ, uh, 300 before Christ, um, air is seen as an environment, as, as one constitutive element of the environment. I will give you a quotation uh, and explain this a bit more uh, in detail. In Galenic medicine, you have the idea that air is connected to certain bodily liquids, to certain qualities, to the organ, heart, uh, to a certain age of the human being, and you can do this for all four elements. So in Galenic medicine, again, you have the conception of a body that is completely open to everything around it, say the cosmos, in the sense that everything consists of the same uh, qualities, the same elemental matter. 
uh, and the same um, yeah, uh, behavior. Um, fourthly, an air as nourishment here, I would quote from uh, one of the most uh, famous treatises on uh, air, John Arbuthnot, a Scottish doctor, John Arbuthnot's essay concerning the effects of air and human bodies. Air is seen as as a, as, as a nourishment alongside food and drink. Men may live whole days without food, not a moment without air. Now, that was more or less the medical part. You can also look at air as a medium of, of the organism, something that surrounds um, living beings. Um, there, air would be understood as climate or as a synonym for climate, but also for air quality in a given place, uh, the carrier of miasma, of, of noxious uh, exhalations. Climate, on the other side, in, a, in an ancient sense, since antiquity, uh, Erastosthenes was the, um, the first um, geometrician uh, to uh, define something like latitudes. Their climate, derived from the word inclination of the sun, would be synonymous to latitude, region, zone, or locality. Lastly, climate would, in a Hippocratic or post-Hippocratic sense, would mean the seasons, the kind of landscapes, uh, even in the 19th century, when people do climatology, they mainly look at landscapes. And the landscape is one unit with the average weather floating around, or the, the climate that shapes this landscape, temperature, uh, and so on. So you see that what we today call air and climate uh, would be called something else in former days. The word climate, on the other hand, would have meant for somebody like the Diderot d'Alembert encyclopedia that would have meant region, country. They say uh, climate, the, the translation of that would be region. Okay, um, so to narrow it down a little bit more to uh, the, the effects of air on human bodies, um, it's a very long tradition. Uh, coming out of Hippocrates, but essentially having the idea that everything that surrounds, wait, I, yeah, the, the, yeah, I just jumped one, uh, one slide. <laughs> That's the Hippocratic definition of air or climate uh, as environment. It's a very famous text uh, by him uh, called On Airs, Waters and Places. It's an instruction for doctors who come to a foreign place, for, to a city, to, and in order to understand, that's the gist of it, in order to understand the illnesses in this, the endemic illnesses in this place, or also the constitution and the mentality of people, you need to see what are the environmental conditions of this place. Whoever, that's the quotation, whoever wishes to investigate medicine properly should proceed thus. In the first place, to consider the seasons of the year and what effects each of them produces, then the winds, the hot and the cold, especially such as are common to all countries and then such as are peculiar to each locality. We must also consider the qualities of the waters, 
In the same manner, we ought to consider the city's situation, geo geographical situation, how it rises to the winds and to the rising of the sun, the sun, and so on and so forth. The text is very long and I cannot sum it up here, but um, the essential idea that lasts from Hippocrates to almost the end of the 19th century, and I tell you what puts the, the last nail into the coffin of this Hippocratic idea of, uh, of medicine and of the body is that the body is in constant exchange with the environment and is constantly um, influenced by environmental condition, most famously, not just winds and the weathers, but that's one of the most important factors, but also water quality or water in general, what kind of water you have, what kind of uh, foods you eat and so on. But one point, um, uh, Hippocrates and then Galen, you will find it again and again. You know, with food and drink, you can go on a diet. Uh, if it, you see it's not good for you, you cannot do that with air. Uh, so the idea is also that if you have a pandemic in a certain region, everybody eats something else. But if everybody is sick from the same disease at the same time, that must come through the air. And that's the primary principle of miasma theory, is the idea that the air is a medium of all sorts of things. You could say the, the exhalations of both life and death are floating around in the air. If you have um, a swamp where decomposition is happening, if you have uh, dead animals or dead bodies, or even a hospital, all that exudes miasma. Um, miasma is also the word that they use in, in Sophocles' Oedipus to describe the pest. But in general, and that's the idea that's very, very per pervasive in the 18th and up to the first half of the 19th century is that contagious diseases are not contagious because they're contagious. They're not jumping from one person to the other or transported through a vector such as a mosquito or a rat or a flea, but that one person exhales it and so it floats around and can affect everybody. So sickness can come through miasma, but also it can be the mere influence of a wind. One wind that is famous in southern Europe is the Scirocco. It makes you sick or it makes you aggressive. Um, and then eventually in the, in the 19th century, what becomes very important with European imperialism and colonialism is the idea that what do unusual or climates that we are not uh, used to uh, due to European bodies. Uh, they, they, there's very often the idea that uh, the tropics are the white man's grave and uh, civilizations cannot thrive in hot climates or very cold climates and so on. Um, another idea, I would just wanted to, to show you that because it's a quotation on Irish climate, is from Alexander Pope. If I lived in Ireland, he writes to Jonathan Swift, uh, of all people. Um, if I lived in Ireland, I fear the wet climate would endanger more than my life 
my humor and health. I am so atmospherical a creature. The idea behind all that is that every human being, every being, every animal is an atmospherical creature, meaning that the air goes right through us, into us and out of us. And so whenever we're sick, it must be something, mainly something meteorological. Uh, fevers are seasonal, for instance, and um, certain wing, winds bring certain uh, uh, fevers and so on. Um, the, the next aspect of this idea of air is that the air is unlike our relation to the air, the air is which, that which we don't feel, we don't ideally don't smell, don't feel on anything. Like in a, in a temperate climate like this room, no smells, no temperature, nothing. In the 18th, 17th, 18th century, air is perceptible all the time. You can smell it. A quote from John Arbuthnot, in summer, the air is replete with a perspirable matter of vegetables abounding with volatile spirits and oils, with, which perhaps stimulates and exhilarates the spirits, and that of some plants is too powerful for some people who cannot support the smell of some of them. If you read uh, Corbin's um, Le Miasme et la Jonquille, I don't remember the English title, uh, he has anecdotes where people die from the breath of a person who has smelled something really bad. You know, it goes like, it, it's so intense. Smelling is so intense. But you can also feel the air. This is a quotation from Montesquieu. I will go back to this later. Um, from his Spirits of the Laws, which famously contains a chapter where he puts um, climate together with his theory of laws, saying not all climates need the same types of laws. But you have to adapt the uh, the legal system to the climate. But he bases this on a physical theory about uh, temperature. A cold air constringes the extremities of the external fibers of the body. Consequently, it increases also their force. On the contrary, a warm air relaxes and lengthens the extremes of the fibers. Of course, it diminishes their force and elasticity. People are therefore more vigorous in cold climates. Here, the temperature of the humors is greater. Uh, the blood moves freer towards the heart and reciprocally, the heart has more power. This superiority of strength must produce various effects. For instance, a greater boldness that is more courage. So you see, it's not just that uh, the temperature of the air affects the body. It affects your psychic um, setup. It affects your emotions. It's, it affects your humor is not just in the in the galenic sense of the juices and the, the the liquids in the body, but also the the passions of the soul, um, what what the eighteenth century would call the passions of the soul. So the the climate and the weather is intensely felt on all levels of human existence. But you can also see the air. That's William Turner. Um, it's one of the many, many Turner pictures that just tries to paint the air, the atmosphere. Um, it's, of course, also an allegory of, uh, of modernization and changing climate of modernity. 
One other uh, image I just wanted to show you because those of you are, who are from the German department maybe know Adalbert Stifter as a poet, one of the most important poets of Austrian literature, but you do not know that he painted a lot of landscape paintings, but also really uh, cloud paintings. This is called Cloud Study, Wolkenstudie. Uh, he's obsessed with the sky and meteorological phenomena. Okay, so that means air can be seen, smelled, felt, um, maybe even tasted, I don't know. Um, one last point, the same, our friend Stifter again, he writes a text on the specificities of Viennese weather. And uh, again, he goes back to this miasma theory, but now relating it to urban life. Our forefathers, he's talking about Vienna, um, built this city so densely that it happens at times when I open my window in the morning to let in fresh air that all I get is the night air from my neighbor's bedroom who also has opened his window and wishes me a good morning. <laughs> so that is also, it's part of the miasma idea. The, the, the stench of my neighbor's bedroom, his exhalations, his breath, I'm inhaling that in the city. So uh, the miasma theory also, it's not just about bad smells. It's really also about social density and how uh, the exhalations of one, uh, one citizen or city dweller uh, may infringe on the health of the other inhabitants, of the neighbor. Okay, um, now cl short uh, clip on geography. This is the classical meaning of climate, meaning a latitude. You see here, you see these um, latitudinals and longitudinal uh, lines. Um, what is more important, and what I, this is why I'm using the uh, uh, map from the 16th century, these are the winds, these little angels. These are not angels, uh, these are winds. Uh, you see already, the new world here, but of course it's essentially about the complex Europe, Asia and Africa. What is more important for a long time is not so much the exact latitude, but zones. This is the equator and you have normally five or seven zones uh, on each hemisphere. And the zone determines, and that's what they very often call climate, the zone determines, again, the temperature and thus the mentality and so on. So that would be the geographical meaning of climate. You wouldn't call that latitudes in the time of D'Agostini, but you would call it climate. Um, my fourth point, climate and society. I'm going back to our friend Montesquieu and the 14th book of his uh, Spirit of the Laws. As you know, it's one of the most important treatises on, uh, in modern political theory, uh, uh, proposing an idea of, as you probably know anyway, of three different powers that constitute a state power, three different and separated powers uh, that, uh, in a certain way, keep each other in check. It's a, it's a theory against the idea of absolute uh, monarchy. And so all of a sudden you have three, three different relations 
and um, and they they should control each other but by being separated now that sounds very modern uh, what doesn't sound so modern is his 14th book and, and some other books after the 14th where he explains that uh, laws or in general the political system has to be adapted not it's not just like Hobbes one side, one Leviathan fits all, right? But uh, it's the idea that he takes from Baudin, Si uh, Livre de la République, um, the idea that uh, every legal system and all the social institutions, such as uh, the, the way families or marriages are defined, do you have polygamy, do you, do you allow slavery, and so on, um, should be adapted to the climate. I'm just giving you th two um, headings of subchapters in this book. General idea. If it be true that the temper of the mind and the passions of the heart are extremely different in different climates, the laws ought to be in relation to both, uh, uh, both to the variety of those passions and to the variety of those tempers. So what we find here um, is, and that's why I think Montesquieu is still interesting. You might think he's just a nutcase after this bodily um, theory of the climate, like it's, it's de determining uh, people's bodies and souls. No, the idea is twofold. Firstly, that every political system and laws and social institutions should be adapted to the environment, to the specifically... The, the living conditions uh, of a population. I think that's one idea that, that's really interesting and still can be used today. The other idea is that of diversity. Again, not one size fits all, but we have to understand social institutions as differentiated according to the diversity and differences between different cultures, between different customs and ways of living. That's, that's the main idea, uh, I think, in, uh, in Montesquieu. And one idea would be to chapter five, that those are bad legislators who favor the vices of the climate, such as making you very slump and lazy if you are dwelling in a hot climate, or you're brute and sexually totally uninterested if you're dwelling in the cold. Um, these are, you know, the, the, the ideas of what the climate does to cultures and human beings. So the bad legislators favor the vices of the climate. Uh, the good legislators oppose those vices. And then he gives an example of the Chinese and the Indians, both in hot climates, the Chinese establishing ethics of work and the, uh, the the Indians establish a religion that just makes you soggy and fatalistic and you don't do anything anymore. Of course, these are caricatures. But still, I think he has the point by defining, because his theory is really not about stability like in the early modern period, but this is really about freedom. And in a certain way, um, Montesquieu is interesting, uh, as is Kant for that matter, because he tries to define human freedom 
inside the environment. Not every environment demands the same types of laws and of freedoms. And human political systems, human laws are a way to position ourselves within these environmental factors. Um, you may call that uh, a bit deterministic. This is how Montesquieu has very often been read. I could give you a long explanation why I think he's not. Uh, but then um, 200 years later, the idea that climate shapes the physiology of human beings is really taken into a deterministic um, uh, theory. Uh, the, the proponent of which, or the most famous proponent, is Ellsworth Huntington, an American geographer. In his the first uh, uh, edition of his Civilization and Climate of 1915, he writes, we realize that a dense and progressive population cannot live in the far north or in deserts simply because the difficulty of getting a living grinds men down and keeps them isolated. We know that the denizens of the torrid zone are slow and backward, and we almost universally agree that this is connected with the damp, steady, steady heat. You will find this type of ideas already in the 18th century. Um, what is maybe so shocking about Huntington um, making this claim in 1915 is that he uses statistics. And so he tries to prove this statistically, and then you look at the statistics and all his concepts, and they are kind of scientifically completely invalid. Um, but the whole idea is in um, Montesquieu, not a deterministic one, but as to find the degrees of freedom that human beings have. One more hero from the climate theory, um, uh, Herder, the philosopher Johann Gottlieb Herder, he, and I will not read this whole quotation, I'll just sum it up. He criticizes Montesquieu for being way too reductionistic, reducing climate to its mere temperature. Um, and he says it's not just the climate that shapes humans, the climate only inclines, which is, of course, a pun with klinein, the Greek word from which climate is derived. Climate only inclines us. And we should not forget that humans can also change local climates. Um, so we have to understand that culture uh, is not shaped simply by climate, but culture is the constant process of negotiation between human needs and human goals and the way the nature is in a given, in a given part. I find this a very interesting uh, uh, humanistic uh, idea of understanding culture within the climate, but as a process not of vanquishing or getting rid of climate, but um, of negotiating the freedom of human beings within the climate. So um, I'll skip that and come to climate and time, or climate as time. Climate um, as a rhythm of nature that in a certain way links natural time to human or historical time. 
it would be two types of time and I'm sure Anna will find this very, very simplistic. I will have to think about it a bit more, but I just wanted to give you that aspect and maybe we can discuss this later. Um, cyclical time, which would be the cycles of, of uh, na nature as the day, the seasons, or such mystic constructions, cyclical mystic constructions as the platonic year or cyclical history, which has a big revival in, in the 18th century. Um, on the one hand, you know, time is this, everything returns. And on the other hand, historical time, um, which is linear and is just going in one direction and nothing ever returns. So let me just give you a work of art uh, on the Four Seasons by Nicolas Poussin from the 17th century. Um, it's this, well, this is spring, this is summer, this is the fall with the raisins, and this is the winter with the deluge, 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 I don't know, yeah. Um, so what he does is he takes this biblical, this is Adam and Eve in the paradise. Um, this is Ruth and Boaz from the ancient Testament. Uh, this is the promised land and the return of the, of the grapes from the promised land. And this is uh, the, yeah, the deluge. And, uh, the idea and it, that's very broad brush and I would have to think about it a bit more, is that in, these, in this type of cyclical, uh, seasonal uh, pattern, he of course injects uh, human time. Mythical time, by referring to these episodes of uh, the Ancient Testament, but of course also um, the, the ages of humans and... Uh, which is also a parallelism that you have very often, uh, but also uh, the different historical episodes in the history of human beings. And you, you know that in the 17th century, biblical history defined the age of the earth. So in a certain way, the, the 6,000 years of biblical history is what people thought at the time was the age of the earth. So you have natural history, um, as a linear aging process, and but also as a history of human beings, um, um, how do you say, linked with um, uh, or telescoped into a cyclical time of the cycles of nature. So uh, this is this is going to be the conclusion. Uh, uh, in a certain way, what you heard now was the rise of the air, and now it's going to be the decline. <laughs> which is not a cyclical model, or maybe, yeah, let's see. But what I want to explain now is all these wonderful things, Montesquieu and, uh, and uh, the Four Seasons and Hippocratic Medicine, that sounds fantastic and kind of hippie, touchy-feely, holistic. Um, how did it, this all come to an end? How did we end up with climate as the average weather that we cannot relate to, that has no relation to our culture, to our lives, to our moods, and so on. What happened? It happened basically in the 19th century, which is always kind of the evil century. <laughs> um, 
but it happened over a long, long time with certain changes in the science of the air, in what we know about the air. Um, firstly, and that happens in the 17th century, uh, an advanced knowledge of the chemistry of the air, uh, people discover that air is in fact a chemical mix of several gases, not a uniform element, and that the body has a metabolism with air, but not does not contain air in the sense that it contains uh, the element air in every, every organ. Um, that would be uh, chemistry and physics. Then, and that's, that can be reconstructed very, very precisely, in the second half of the 19th century, we have a rise of what one could call a systematic um, uh, meteorological research that starts to gather data not just on a local scale, which had been done already in the 18th century, but really tries to gather data on a global scale. We have Alexander von Humboldt, who draws the first climate, uh, I, I, I didn't bring that, uh, a global uh, idea of climate not just being linked to the latitudes, the uh, famous isotherm uh, map, um, but in the second half, long after Humboldt's death, in the second half of the 19th century, there's a worldwide um, uh, rise of, uh, of data gathering, of standardizing data, and of trying to describe atmosphere or weather climate not as a local phenomenon, but as a, a global planetary system of flows. This is the birth of modern meteorology, and this is also the birth of climatology, uh, with the likes of uh, Svante Arrhenius, who was the first uh, scientist to, to understand the relation between temperature and CO2 in, in the atmosphere, and so on. But from this moment on, and the definition comes from an Austrian climatologist, Julius von Hahn, in his, uh, what was it, Handbuch der Klimatologie from 1888, he, there he defines climate for the first time as the average weather. Somebody like Stifter would have said, what, what do you mean? <laughs> right? Um, but uh, this is the, the totally new understanding of climate. In medicine, the body starts being separated, and that's, again, it's a very, very long process with understanding how the blood circulates in the body, uh, what, what it does there, um, to uh, modern germ theory, but essentially medicine starts to understand within the 19th century, but also rather in the, in the later decades, that the body is essentially, the human body and everybody, everybody every organism, can be totally separated from its environment. So there is no such thing as an atmospherical creature uh, like Alexander Pope. No, it's just wear a sweater, uh, and you know, and maybe you have a flu. Um, which brings me to uh, one more coffin in the uh, uh, one more nail in the coffin of the air biology uh, with. Uh, uh, Scientific heroes such as Louis Pasteur or Robert Koch, the German uh, uh, biologist, uh, you have Koch 
famously in, I think, 82, isolated uh, cholera bacteria uh, from the medium, in that case water, and that is the end of miasma theory. This end, again, is not like Pam on the day that Robert Koch isolated uh, that uh, cholera bacterium, but um, it, it is a slow process. And for a long time, the notion of contagion, meaning a pathogen traveling from one organism to the other, that would be contagion by touch, by spit or something, um, and miasma, exhalations floating through the air, that exists for a very long time alongside each other. And for those of you from the German department, if you want to read a story where exactly this happens, you have both paradigms. You would say, though, this is mutually exclusive. It's, it's not. In literature, at least, it's totally not even in uh, 1911. Uh, it's uh, Thomas Mann's Tod in Venedig, The Death in Venice. You have both. And it's not necessarily the, the germ theory that wins. It's my reading. <laughs> but at one point in the, in the novel, uh, in, in the story, you have a, a guy who, who explains the whole germ theory and says, oh, this miasma and Shiroko is just bullshit. Forget it. So um, what's so interesting about that? Again, we have a separation of organisms such as infected bodies, but also pathogens from the medium. So the medium is devaluated. Air as a medium of both health and sickness is devaluated in favor of many other mediums. Just, yeah, they, you have something floats through the air, but most comes through bodily liquids, uh, water, food, uh, and of course vectors uh, such as rats, fleas, and mosquitoes for malaria, and so on. In the social sciences, the end of the air comes with modern sociology, um, such as Emile Durkheim, for instance, who say, if we want to explain social phenomena, we can only refer to social phenomena. We cannot refer to the seasons. There's famously the study of Emile Durkheim on uh, suicide, and he, he de dedicates a whole chapter um, to uh, the question, does suicide depend on the seasons? It is not. This is not a valid explanation anymore. And in geology, you have the separation of very, very slow, gradual Earth history from uh, human history. My last slide, the return of the air to not have you leave like, oh my God, why was she telling us all this and now the air is dead anyway. We have air pollution, so we have very intense relations between bodies and, and pathogenic effects of the air. In certain regions, it's, it's one of the prime causes of mortality. We have climate change uh, and climate change denialism. Um, we have the a system that is the, the latitudes start to, to shake in a certain way. We have new findings in medicine that also relate many um, many um, disease, uh, diseases or, or un forms of unwellness uh, to meteorological causes. And we have an airborne disease uh, such as COVID-19. 
we have a renewed interest in non-Western cosmologies that try to frame human lives within uh, natural factors, of course. Um, I don't want to get too deep into that. And we have ultimately the Anthropocene as the collision of natural history and human history. Okay, so that's it. Thank you very much for your patience. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. For more information, to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.